Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 144, King Cholred, a lunatic running the asylum. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Robert, Bo, and Steve for contributing already. All right, starting with this episode, I'm going to refer to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms as English. That's because we're at the point where Bede was writing, and he seems to have seen the Angles and Saxons as virtually indistinguishable. And he had remarkably little to say about the Jutes. So I thought that I would put that down as a marker. From now on, we're going to use the term English. And actually, in the members feed, we just finished an episode on Englishness and what that is. Since it is relevant both for this show and also it seems to be coming up a great deal in modern discourse these days. And here's a brief clip of what we're talking about over there. The thing is that the deeper you dig into ethnicity, the more difficult it is to pin down because it isn't like we have a firm starting point. Human beings wander and change, and modern concepts of ethnicity require a sort of static truth that history simply cannot give us. As you already know, what Bede described as the English people is far more complex than that. There wasn't a single monolithic culture during any period in which he was writing. So even from the start, the concept of Englishness has some issues. And the paragraph where he relates that they were descended from three Germanic groups, the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, is also a gross oversimplification. We now know that it would be an incredibly huge error to assume that the Anglo-Saxons had distinct tribal identities in their homelands and that they maintained them in Britain. And when we look at Northern European and Germanic culture for the time, we don't see insular hillbillies, but rather we see complex stratified societies. And in particular, on and around the Danish peninsula, there seems to have been a cultural value placed upon maintaining contacts and relationships with other people across a wide geographical area. Hardly the sort of thing that would lead to a distinct cultural group. And it is from this region that we're told that the Anglo-Saxons came from. But many scholars still cling to Bede's short paragraph about the Anglo-Saxons, because in it, he forms the English national story. And they completely disregard the archaeological evidence, not to mention the epistemological evidence. I mean, we're treating an isolated Northumbrian monk writing in the 8th century as an expert on 5th and 6th century continental ethnicities. That's madness. But if you read older texts, you'll see the authors talk about the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes as three distinct peoples, both in their continental homeland and also in Britain, which is completely false. They'll also focus on small variations in style of material culture as a way to try and support this notion that there is an ethnic difference in their settlements, even though archaeologists have long argued that ethnicity and material goods are not linked that strongly. And Kevin Leahy points out that even when looking at individual artifacts, scholars will sometimes overemphasize the Germanic nature of objects, even when they appear far more closely tied to late Roman styles. And that is likely because, as Germanic artifacts, they reinforce the English national story. 
The same thing happens with other Germanic objects found, where scholars forget that Germanic auxiliaries had come to Britain with Roman legions, starting with the very first invasion by Claudius. The idea that we might have Germanic material goods in Britain is not shocking, and it certainly doesn't require a large-scale invasion. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that this is a conspiracy or anything of the kind. Rather, I'm saying that these scholars knew the story written by Bede. So they looked for confirmation in the artifacts, rather than letting the artifacts tell their own story. And that is how strong a written record and a national myth can be in the cultural consciousness. However, I think scholars and even narrators on a podcast have a responsibility to discuss the facts with as much objectivity as we can, rather than suspending our disbelief for the sake of a beloved myth. Because that's the issue, isn't it? It's a myth, and we work to maintain it. Not just the story that Bede relates, but also the idea that Englishness is something that's found in the blood, rather than something that society created on its own. But if you start taking it apart... You can't find a single aspect that you can point to and say that, that right there is the core indispensable aspect of Englishness. Instead, it's just a soupy collection of vague ideas that provide a sort of security and sense of place. But we have to let go of that if we're going to take a serious look at the history of this era and where the modern English people come from. Now, if you'd like to hear more and find out what the Anglo-Saxons thought of the concept of Englishness, just hop on over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up for a membership. It's cheap and endorsed by my grandmother. Okay, so recently we've chatted about some cultural matters, and I've also given you a broad overview of the failed dynastic politics of Northumbria and where this is all headed. But we really didn't cover too much of what was going on elsewhere. We hinted at it, but I'm sure you're curious about the other heavy hitter in England, Mercia. As Northumbria lost steam faster than a boy band approaching its 30s, you might be wondering if the Mercians were going through a similar collapse. Well, financially, they seem to be doing pretty well, and based upon charters, it seems that they even had control of London, at least for part of this period, though they probably shouldn't count on that since London does seem to change hands faster than a mortgage-backed security. But, overall, their economy seemed to be doing pretty okay. Dynastically, though, things seemed a little tense. Much like Northumbria, we've largely been talking about a single family ruling in Mercia for nearly a hundred years. The line of Penda. So you would be forgiven if you thought the royal house of Mercia were the Pendingas. But they weren't. Penda was not the founding member of the royal house. The dynasty were the Iklingas. And there were many other nobles active in the Midlands who had a connection to their dynastic founder. And some even had a strong claim. In particular, you had the family of Eowa. Do you remember Eowa? He was the older brother of Penda, who ruled Mercia for a while, and might have shared rule with Penda for a time. So he was a pretty big deal. I mean, Penda and his line didn't even come into their own until Eowa died at the Battle of Mazer Field. So what we're driving at is the line of Penda didn't have the exclusive right to rule, and after nearly a hundred years of dominance, it seems that other families wanted to get involved. In particular, the descendants of Eowa thought it was their turn to rule. And King Cholred, son of Aethelred, recognized this danger. And soon after he took the throne in 709, he exiled the scion of the line of Eowa, a teenager 
by the name of Aethelbald. Problem solved. Aethelbald couldn't very well rule if he didn't live in the kingdom, and so, outmaneuvered, he retreated to the Fens along with his supporters. And it was there that he became friends with St. Guthlac, a name that might sound familiar since he was referenced in the Staffordshire Horde episodes. And this will be a significant friendship in Aethelbald's life. But I want to tell you a little bit about St. Guthlac, because he is an interesting character. So Guthlac was a Mercian noble, and he lived exactly the sort of life that you would expect a Mercian noble to live. Basically, it was rather violent. Okay, he was a lot violent. Once he reached his teenage years, he gathered a warband of his own, armed them, and then went to war. We're told that he avenged, quote, his grudges on his enemies and burned their city and ravaged their towns, and widely through the land he made much slaughter and slew and took from men their goods, end quote. And that's what his own scribe had to say about him. So yeah, he was violent. But he eventually decided to change his ways and he became a monk at Ripon, you know, St. Wilfrid's monastery. But by the time that Aethelbald had met him, Guthlec had retreated from his monastery, and he was now living as a hermit in the Fens. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Fens, this is a region of East Anglia that, until it was drained, was marshland. So in my mind's eye, the way I imagine this scene is much like Yoda on Dagobah. And worse than that... Guthlac was living in a barrow. A barrow is a mound of earth and stones that's used for burial. And Guthlac had found one that had been partially dug out by treasure hunters, and he decided to call that little gothic hobbit hole his home. Grim, right? But back to the story. So now Aethelbald had been driven into Guthlac's backyard by King Cholred. And before you say, ugh, why wouldn't you go somewhere nicer? It doesn't look like he had much of a choice. We're told that King Cholred didn't just drive him into exile. Aethelbald was being pursued. He was literally in hiding in the marshland. So, things were not looking good for Aethelbald. He wasn't the king of Mercia, and he wasn't even a noble in Mercia. He was just a homeless guy hanging out in a swamp with a few of his friends, who were probably wondering if they backed the wrong horse. And here's how bad it is. It isn't clear if Aethelbald even had a barrow of his own or if he had to share Guthlac's. For all we know, Guthlac's moldy little tomb might have seemed like a palatial estate compared to Aethelbald's living situation. But he had befriended Guthlac, and that was incredibly valuable. And seriously, think about it. If you're an ousted noble from Mercia who has to take refuge in largely uninhabited lands, finding and befriending a Mercian gangster who's living in a tomb and who might have been looking for a new hobby... That's incredibly lucky. And it seems that St. Guthlac was quite sympathetic to Aethelbald's cause. This could have been because Guthlac was also tired of the line of Penda. After all, he had gone into exile himself during the reign of King Cholred's father, King Aethelred. So maybe he wasn't overly pleased with that line as a whole. Or perhaps he was troubled by how Cholred gained the throne. Some scholars, such as York, believe that Cholred might have forced the former king, Conred, to abdicate and retire to Rome, and that might have rubbed Guthlac the wrong way. All of that's possible. Personally, though, I suspect it was due to the fact that King Cholred of Mercia was sort of like King Osred of Northumbria. He was a young king, and he was god-awful. And fun fact, 
Osred and Cholred were ruling at the same time. So that's nice. Two of the most powerful kingdoms in England were being ruled by young and terrible kings. What could go wrong? In fact, of the things written about King Cholred, it really is stunning how much of it has to do with the fact that he was hostile to the church, and also they focused upon his criminal and immoral behavior. One of my favorite accounts is that the angels surrounding Cholred had, quote, withdrawn their protective shield and abandoned him to demons because of the multitude of crimes he had committed, end quote. So, we have yet another Joffrey in England. And both of them are ruling at the same point in history. And I think we're starting to see why Bede was so concerned about the way things were going on the island. This is awful. And so my guess is that St. Guthlac decided to come out of retirement at least a little bit in order to help Aethelbald deal with the psychotic who was sitting on the throne. And so, he trained Aethelbald in the ways of the Force. Okay, wasn't that awesome. But Guthlac was well-connected to Mercian society before he withdrew for spiritual reasons. And those contacts hadn't disappeared. And besides, Guthlac was only in his late 30s or early 40s, and so the nobles he surrounded himself with when he was a teen and in his 20s wouldn't have forgotten about him. And he was something of a badass back in the day. And if we know one thing about Mercian politics, it's that the nobility really respected martial ability. So Guthlac's word would have carried quite a bit of weight. Further, it seems that there were other nobles who were quite worried about their current king. So Guthlac began to take visitors from the upper echelons of Mercian society, including the powerful Bishop of Lichfield. He might have also been courting support from the East Anglian royal dynasty at the same time. But Guthlac was also quite sick. Living in a swamp will do that to you. And eventually, he contracted a fever from which he couldn't recover. And on April 11th, 714, St. Guthlac died at the age of 40 or 41. But the wheels of change were already turning. And in the life of St. Guthlac, Felix claims that Guthlac appeared to Aethelbald in a vision and made a prophecy that God would shorten King Cholred's life and deliver the kingdom into Aethelbald's hands. And how you feel about this probably hinges on whether or not you believe in visions. It could be the Almighty signaling he was going to back Aethelbald's play. Or it could be a literary flourish to highlight to the nobility in Mercia, and maybe even the nobility in East Anglia, that the saint had politically endorsed Aethelbald. Though honestly, if King Cholred really was acting crazy, stating that he'd have a short life probably wasn't that much of a stretch. And if the angry nobility didn't handle it, we know from the culture episodes that the tender mercies of English medicine probably would. But two things are certain. One, there was a growing discontent with King Trollred of Mercia. And two, now that Guthlac was dead, Aethelbald probably had a new fancy barrow to live in. Meanwhile, King Trollred might have realized how precarious his position was. I mean, he did have Mercian aristocrats going into foreign swamps to discuss how much he sucks. So I'm guessing he wasn't getting invited to Unferth's annual pool party, and he must have known he wasn't that popular. But Despite being kind of awful, he wasn't stupid. Or at least, Cholred's advisors weren't. Because we're told that in 715, war broke out between Mercia and Wessex. 
We aren't told who started it, but based upon the political situation in Mercia, combined with how it's recounted in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's a pretty safe bet that Chulred was the one who started the fight when he invaded Wessex. And taking land from the West Saxons would increase his status. And the land at Woden's Barrow in Wiltshire, which is now known as Adam's Grave, was actually a rather important location in the struggle over southern dominance. And yes, this is the same Woden's Barrow where Chawlin of Wessex had lost so terribly against the Britons. This is a stretch of land that has history, and it's also a bit of land that both sides wanted. And Cholred needed a win. So it was there at Woden's Barrow that King Cholred and his Mercian army faced off with King Inna of Wessex and his West Saxons. Maybe. Again, the record is spotty. It's also possible that Mercia and Wessex had joined together to fight the Britons or some other army. It really is hard to say. But what we can say for sure is that there was a big fight at Woden's Barrow, and both Inna and Cholred were there. And... <sighs> we really aren't told anything else. But consider who's relating this story to us. It's the scribes of Wessex who are compiling the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So it's pretty safe to assume that the West Saxons didn't do too well. And depending on who they were fighting, that was either good or bad news for King Cholred. The takeaway here, though, is that Cholred was behaving like a king who was politically getting backed into a corner. And so it comes as no surprise that in the following year, in 716, King Cholred died. And the account of his death is rather rough. And the whole event makes me wonder if the life of Cholred was used as inspiration for Game of Thrones, because we're told by St. Boniface that King Cholred died at a banquet, and that with his dying breath, he was, quote, gibbering with demons and cursing the priests of God, end quote. For fans, the banquet is a bit suspect, isn't it? But whatever, that's one Joffrey down, and consider this. King Cholred was such an awful king that he ruined the chances for his entire dynasty. Yeah, despite the fact that Penda's children are legion, he was the last of the line of Penda to rule. Something else you might have noticed is that 716 is the same year that King Osred of Northumbria, the other awful young king who was like Joffrey Baratheon, was murdered. Now, isn't that a crazy coincidence? Or... Maybe it wasn't a coincidence, and the death of Cholred gave the nobility of Northumbria some ideas. Whatever the case, what happened on that year really is astounding. For over 70 years, the line of Penda had dominated the Mercian throne, and for the better part of a hundred years, the line of Aethelfrith held the same advantage in Northumbria. And for much of that period, their dynasties had been at each other's throats despite the fact that they had intermarried on numerous occasions. Against all odds, their rise in power was linked in remarkably strange ways. And now, in 716, both dynasties found their power broken. In Mercia, the line of Penda was shattered beyond repair. And in Northumbria, the line of Aethelfrith was barely limping along. And it was probably only able to do that because the line of Ida of which Aethelfrith was on, was prolific, with, of course, the exception of the Sons of Oswiu. There always seems to be someone on the line of Ida who's ready to take the throne. 
But for a couple years, it did seem that Aethelthrith's line was completely ousted. And then in 718, the line of Aethelfrith was back, and Osred's brother, Osric, took the throne of Northumbria. Good times were here again. Or maybe not. But as you might remember, under Osric's father, King Aldfrith, there were some positive changes in Northumbria. For example, there was an attempt at silver currency in the kingdom. And a moneyed economy is quite useful to the throne. Provided, of course, that it's actually used and doesn't get debased by unscrupulous people. And if that's the case, it can allow a kingdom to greatly expand its borders, and maybe even turn into an empire. After all, collecting taxes over a large distance through coins is far easier than collecting taxes through food. But then King Aldfrith died, and Osred took over. And between his rule and his successors, we see a rapid loss of the silver coinage. Not only that, but with King Osred being murdered, and the brief rise and fall of King Conred, who was from a different family, it seems pretty clear that the strength of the line of Aethelfrith was shattered, and there were now rival families in Northumbria who wanted to try their luck. So maybe good times weren't here again. For the longest time, Northumbria, at least the upper echelons of Northumbria, had benefited from their kingdom being centralized under an authoritarian dynasty that wielded almost total control. This, in addition to their economic advantages, made the kingdom powerful enough to refuse even the Pope. But now their economy was in tatters. Their political system was fractured. And the kingdom was unstable at best, and often racked with major internal strife. This was not good. So... Naturally, by the time Osric was in power, their currency was faltering and falling out of fashion. And that makes perfect sense. All throughout history, we see examples of coinage vanishing, or at least losing most of its value when governments start to collapse. And Northumbria was no exception. So, by the time that Osric died, things in the north seemed to be moving backwards. And into this mess, King Osric took the throne and he appointed Cholwulf, the brother of King Conred, as his successor. And that, combined with the fact that he ruled from 718 to 729, is pretty much all we know about King Osric. We are truly drifting into a dark period in our history. But something to note is that during the reign of Osric, things in Northumbria didn't improve. And more than that, when Cholwulf eventually became king, he named his own first cousin as his successor. So the line of Oswiu was being cut out of the halls of power. While we aren't given many details of this era in Northumbrian politics, it's clear that there was a titanic shift in power that was going on, and the family that had dominated the kingdom for over a century was now being pushed into the shadows. But despite the chaos in northern political life, the attention to scholarly pursuits which had begun under the reign of King Aldfrith was continuing to grow. So here we are, in the early 700s, and it's quite clear that Northumbria might not be a place where you'd want to reign, or even walk the halls of power, but it was certainly becoming a major center of learning in the English territories. But for the most part, the real hegemonic movement in England was now coming from the south, not the north. And there was a new king who took the throne of Mercia following the death of Cholred, and one that would signal a resurgence of Mercian dominance. And that is what we're going to talk about next episode. 
with the rise of King Aethelbald of Mercia. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. 